All right. Welcome to Techno Social. We're here with Cadell Last, author of Sex, Masculinity, and God. Welcome, Cadell. So, so excited to be here. Let's get rolling. Welcome. Yes. So, can you tell us a little bit about the context of this book and, and in what sort of context did you guys uh, write it? Sure. Um, for me, obviously, those three concepts, sex, masculinity, and God, are kind of taboo. At the time, I was still a PhD student in Brussels. And even though I was at an interdisciplinary institute, I felt like, and you know, we had weekly conversations and presentations about many different topics, many different subjects. It was really an interdisciplinary institute. However, those topics of sex, masculinity, and God, I felt were still taboo, even at this, you know, fairly open-minded um, academic group. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted basically to build the space uh, and associate with with others who were open to fully going into those three topics and, and just sort of seeing what came out. And, um, you know, I, long story short, uh, my two co-authors, Kevin Oros, Daniel Dick and I um, decided to sort of turn this into a series and it eventually evolved into a book. And the elevator pitch I have for the book basically is that the topic of sex is important because our normative frames of knowledge are disconnected from the real of sexuality. And we not, we have to change that. Um, The topic of masculinity is important because we need to have spaces to discuss what masculinity means post waves of feminist revolution. And I don't think we've really built the spaces to to, to have those conversations yet. Um, The best example I think is that the gender studies courses are basically taught from a feminist lens and not, you know, a, a dynamic, uh, interactive lens of the interaction between masculinity and femininity, which to me would be an interesting starting point for a gender theory. Um, and then the concept of God is important because even though we live in a post-religious age, I think there's still a, a deep <clears throat> desire to approach deep metaphysical questions. Um, why are we here? Where are we going? What What's the nature of reality? And those lead us into territories which were formerly religious territories, um so altogether that's the book we try to we try to go into a knowledge of sexuality we try to talk about masculinity today post-feminist revolution and we try to approach deep metaphysical questions which bring us to mysteries of god bring us to mysteries of religion and so forth it feels like this book also comes in a specific time meaning that we do live in an age where uh the technological disruption has increased so much that it is very, very evident that sex is shifting its norms, its discourses, that even God or the gods as as a function of of humanity are also in a process of shifting. Naturally, that will feed back into masculinity. Do you feel like technology, the internet and the current moment weave into this, that they contribute to this process? Absolutely. This book is, I would say, this book is uh, in an, an inactive Hegelianism because it treats the present. It, it really take it tries to be a book of the present moment. It tries to understand the present the present moment as it is, um, and you can't understand the present moment without understanding the emergence of the internet and all of the various technologies which are feeding into this larger global web of interconnection, which is totally transforming our sociocultural existence. Um, you know, to give even, you know, one, one example, if, if you look at 
the amount of traffic that pornography takes on the on internet consumption it's like something on the level of 30 35% i mean that's the unconscious of the human mind which is now on visual display for the whole planet all you need is a smartphone and you have access to our basic our basic most primordial unconscious instincts and drives you know and 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 just there's no it's hard it's hard to it's hard to state strongly enough how much of a rupture that is it, it, i just i don't know how to state it enough because there's just nothing like it in history it's such an enormous eruption and there's so little conversation about it so it's really absurd <laughs> And, and it's remarkable how these these three topics do weave into each other sex masculinity and god because uh it could be said that the role that you know the the functions of religion and throughout history the gods the minor gods the cult of this god the cult of Dionysus and Cybele and all of this stuff that they did perform sort of a regulatory function of the human being and one of the functions of the human being is sexuality so one of the functions historically of religions and also of civilization writ large right it's civilization and its discontents by freud has been to really contain sex and direct it in a way that allows humans to more or less maintain a commons and not kill each other in the street i mean and like build a city and build whatever civilization um means from being settled right how how can we do this now we know that there was some nomadism before that that there was perhaps a non-settled state on which we used to live and then it feels like you know civilization just took off right um how does that ring with you how does that ring with you in and in, in in terms also of the shifts that are occurring right now because they seem to be happening so fast these types of shifts wouldn't have taken uh, such little time in the past if if of course see you guys are both young intelligent guys and if there are any young intelligent guys out there listening right now i would say concentrate your intelligence on the paradox between evolutionary theory and religious civilization there is a huge paradox between evolutionary theory and religious civilization and if we can approach deeply thinking this paradox i just think there's gold to be found um let me put it simply as my, like a starting point for the way i think about it is that <clears throat> if if you take as an assumption that we evolved as a species when we evolved there was no there was no nothing like religion there was just basically primates um in language and that means that our basic sexual drives we're being filtered through language and over time you have as our social groups grow you have these problems of collective organization and the larger our collective organizations became the more difficult was the problem of sexuality so i mean history in, in to some extent is the construction of institutions to deal with enormous scale problems of of collective human social life and 
there are huge metaphysical systems that were constructed throughout history, which basically were metaphysical systems to contain our most primordial sexual energy. Now you reach the modern world and you have this disembodied intellectual critique of religion. And what happens is, is you get the breakdown of centuries and millennia of conceptual scaffolding that helped us deal with sexual energy. And you have what's the only thing that's left is the raw drive. Mm -hmm. So right now what we have is just the raw drive of sexuality. We see it on the internet. We see it in pornography. We see it in modern dating. We see it in the app culture. We see it in disposability. We see it in short-term dating. We see it in the decline of marriage. We see it in the decline of, of reproduction. All these things are basically the consequence of assuming that our transcendental scaffolding is irrelevant and illusory and meaningless. And the ultimate paradox of that is that the, the knowledge form, which requires us to deconstruct religion, is evolutionary theory. But evolutionary theory is working with sexual reproduction as its foundational principle. It's a huge paradox. Mm -hmm. It might so, be a... Might so be a just, to, just to end, basically, what I think is, is that evolutionary theorists can only so boldly deconstruct religion on the basis that they exclude themselves from... They exclude themselves in their personal life, their own sexuality, their own embodied existence in a society and community in order to come to the conclusions that they do. Reminds me what I've heard you saying about um, serious high grade professors and academics who get utterly thrown around by their wives who do not have their personal lives under control at all. I think it was in one of your interviews, perhaps the one with, uh, with Andrew Sweeney and Alexander Bard, where you're saying there's this paradoxical thing that Actually, the most important thing in day-to-day -day life is how one relates to one's partner, other people, and primarily one's partner, one's feeling of sex and, <laughs> and love, adoration, these relationships. And while we have this, this disembodied intellect science of uh, the objective laws of materiality, the actual science, if you could call it a science, I don't think science is the right word for it, but the knowledge basis of how to be in relationship is, um, well, that is kind of what a large branch of religion is running, especially the sexual branch of religion. We've lost it. We even have the fact that I think many of what, people when they talk of religion really they're talking about the the abrahamic religions and I, I can't speak for the rest of the world but there's quite a a simplified sense of uh way of managing the sex drive within them which is monogamy and don't cheat marry stay married that's the way to do it which it doesn't have anything it doesn't allow for a dialogue or a um an inquiry really into the sex drive. It's just kind of like Absolutely. a border. And we're at a point now where even that border's gone. 
let me just let me just emphasize that um you know while religion was a type of metaphysical scaffolding to deal with our sexuality the way in which religion did that and does that in some areas of the world is massively problematic <laughs> so so there's a lot of i mean you know sexuality here is a paradox for science and it's a paradox for religion as well <laughs> so let me introduce the following so so kind of trying to weave this these three topics together <clears throat> some people say that the 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 core issue is really civilization and sedentarism religion emerged as kind of this way to deal with this problem to sort of as a as a managerial operating system as a vessel or a scaffolding as you said and these these scaffoldings they are operational they are they are constitutive of of our extended bodies they have a they have a very deep and intimate relationship these memes and these discourses they they have impact in in really bodies and human bodies and I don't want to sound too postmodern here, but that's the way to say it. Now, it does feel that, especially in the last, obviously, modernity comes in. And much of what modernity does is it allows people to um, not, it, it removes the need for these scaffoldings. It makes these a little bit more obsolete, meaning we can get away with less restraint over libido and not really pay the consequences for that because industrial production has scaled so much we don't really have to you know democracies have become so wealthy that we can actually indulge a little bit more in desire and, and let's go can we go into that yeah i just want to like finalize here so capitalism uh, 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 comes in and it sees a buck to be made by <clears throat> incentivizing people to indulge in desire uh, capital pr and advertising is really about creating inventing desires in the libido of, of, of people making you want something. The problem is if you do it at scale with sufficient numbers of people, especially in the age of digital, what happens is that there's so much desire being put out there without necessarily having a vessel to contain it, that it becomes kind of this, this bataille type situation with a lot of headless wills, a lot of like sacrificed children, uh, a lot of memes being thrown at the newosphere and they actually just have been unleashed. They have been unleashed from what the orthodoxists call the katekon, which is that which restrains. Restrains what? In mythology, it restrains Gog and Magog, I believe. These primordial demons with whom the old ones established contracts to restrain them. When did they establish these, these contracts? At the birth of civilization. Okay, restrain these demons, these wild horses of desire, the titans, to stick them in Tartarus. And then we can, you know, direct a little bit in an Apollonian way, the, the, the direction of, of civilization using precisely religion. But, you know, it gets to a point that like everything living, going through cycles of early mid-stage and late stage, <clears throat> it, it gets transformed. Uh, and the new sphere is no exception to this transformation. So, it definitely so, so let's, let's, let's go into a little bit about this, this, our current historical epoch allows for a transformation of the very constraints of sexuality itself. And there's a lot of confusion about that. So of course, before the 20th century, let's say, um, there were many dangers of having sex. Um, some of the dangers include, of course, unwanted pregnancy, you could have STDs, and that would have a huge 
um, effect on the constraints of the family because you're in extreme scarcity. So there's a lot of, there are a lot of reasons, necessary reasons to keep sexuality as something, you know, extremely constrained, basically. Now, in the 20th century, those basic constraints are radically widened. I mean, one example would be the birth control pill, for example, which allows women to basically take control of their reproduction. Um, the wide accessibility of condoms. I mean, uh, uh, there's, there's, you know, the, the dramatic life, life extension and the reduction of the necessity to even, you know, have kids in the first place, like, which is absolutely foreign to the pre-modern mind. Um, I think that what an unreflective analysis of this leads one to is just, okay, we can just freely have sex. And that is, I think, where the problem comes in is because it's not that we, it's not that in the 20th century, we go from a, a place where sexuality is problematic to a place where sexuality is unproblematic. We go from a place where the problematics of sexuality themselves transform. So we have new problematics of sexuality. What are some of those problematics? I think they transform basically from challenges of, you know, reproduction and, and biological disease to problems of emotional and social identity. So I think today, primarily, we're dealing with problems of sexuality, which are mostly in the domain of how do I deal with sexuality as a social emotional category that's important for my intergenerational development, let's say. And without a way to talk about that, we just have a chaotic drive. Mm -hmm. And we have psychotic identities. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and it feels like that is so much, is, is, is obviously, as you said, of the moment. It is something epochal. You know, evolutionarily speaking, this is, these have been an exceptional 100 or even 50 years. And you compare that to, uh, to the span of evolution. Wow. What's happening, right? Is it an evolutionary bottleneck? It is a fork. Is it a fork? Is it something that has to do with the emergence of what some people call the noosphere as this extra layer of the earth as a living being? You know, ideas and mind are not really artificial. They are natural because we are natural. Probably the most natural thing in my room right now is me. So this, this, this realm of ideas that we're just pouring out right now, I think these problematics of, of sexuality are a byproduct of the birth pangs of the newosphere, of the birth pangs of these new organisms in the earth, broadly speaking, that are made of minds that are perhaps a continuation of humans at another level of abstraction, if you will. Uh, some people speak about synthios, uh, the problem of God and how the old gods don't really make sense. So maybe, uh, God will emerge from the internet or from our creations. It feels like yet another 
circumambulation around the, the, the core issue here. That's how I feel. Uh, well, situated within this, this field, which is the battity, that is really one of the, the big meta problems of our current historical moment is that up until quite recently, I think there was a way to belong. There was a way to know where, who you were. You were a Christian or a Muslim or a British person or a European where now these signifiers still float about, but increasingly they're divorced from anything like what, like the historical circumstances when they emerged in this global techno capital world where we are plugged in with the, with the internet everywhere. And, liberation kind of becomes tied up in this in this battle for identity identity becomes like who am i so that i will be the most free and that's that's kind of what the uh, the modern era emerges from with the uh, the ideals of the french revolution overthrow the aristocracy overthrow the old order in the name of the liberated individual and and then sexuality in the mid 20th century kind of becomes synonymous with with liberalize with yeah with liberalization you will be free when your sex drive or when you are free from whatever constraints humanity puts around your sex drive. I think the I was thinking about this dialectically the other day, perhaps the way to frame it is actually like to say, no, you will never be free of your sex drive. That's actually the way to, to begin with where we are at now. Sex is not some wonderful thing that just unleashing it will, will make us infinitely creative. Um, and it's not something to essentialize identity around either. If one attempts to do that, we end up with increasing battles over what is what is permitted, who who can express their sex drive and who can't, and how the uh, the body of those who who are allowed to express their sex drive are the enemy of those who are supposedly not allowed to express this uh, this sex drive. I think it. I think it's. I think it's. 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 De it's definitely. It's definitely being brought to our attention today that that sex is kind of like a, um, a a a bat a battleground. I mean, that's how. That's how sort of like, I don't know. That's how what I would say folk theory is formulating. Folk theory is formulating sex as a battleground, kind of. If you take, for example the incel movement is probably the best example where there's this recognition of how unfair sexuality is. There's this recognition that when you don't have constraints, when you don't have any norms, when you don't have any standards, basically there's a dramatic injustice or unfairness in who is sexually desirable. And there's, there's a, there's a, uh, an inability to do anything about it because the mind is so impotent to, transform the conditions of possibility of its own body so in this in this in this situation you know and and just to make clear like this folk this folk theory that's emerging outside of the academy is you know it's it's rough around the edges it's it's not really well formulated but at the same time there's a raw reel to it and it's a raw reel which is absolutely repressed in the academic theory because in the academic theory, it's totally, I like what Alenka Zupanchich says about the academic gender theory, which is that it's a neutered theory. It's a gender theory with no sex. Yeah. Um, just this idea that you can freely construct your gender however you want, 
and that there's no sexual real involved. Whereas in my view, gender identity is kind of a reaction formation to your sexual possibilities. Um, and that doesn't mean that we're essentializing to a certain biological body, on the contrary. But what it does mean is that there are extreme limits to free construction of gender identity. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I feel like I'm going to remain at perhaps a level of abstraction, not going into any any precise details. But there's a reason why I want to do that. I want to bring up the word neo-political, meaning the political nature of sex, of God, of masculinity and all that, but on the level of the newosphere, meaning that um, these battles and the emergence of folk theory and how it relates to, to how people um, make sense of, of their own sex in, in society for me is indissociable from mimetic struggle, which is technologically uh, allowed so technology is is kind of at the crux of this whole thing it it invents a new sphere the newest sphere where humans can actually exchange their ideas with with great it's the internet it's the fear of the sphere of, of meme plexes where they where they exist and they interact etc and these large superorganisms, these these thought forms which is kind of this this way to call them it's it's kind of a working title of of how we can actually address these mimetic coagulations they they have a relationship between themselves and there's, they have reasons. Uh, they are all locked in sort of this dysfunctional libidinal star system. For example, ra the, the radical far right and the extreme Islamist, Islamists exist like this. They, one feeds off the other with, with uh, any it's provocation from one side, mimetic theory tells us that the other needs to continue and like raise the bar and keep doing that. So I feel that this points towards sort of a new political analysis of the meme plexes and how they how they do battle amongst themselves. Now, I would I wouldn't want to actually say, here's the topology, here's how it works, here's a few rules of how ideas mingle, because we can't really do that because they're inextricably connected to our own libido and to our own unconscious, which makes them like too chaotic and too volatile to actually uh, try to standardize. However, I think it makes sense to look at things with, with this level of abstraction, meaning that for the, for the single reason that new political victories transpire into all sorts of other political victories and so on. Um, there's a reason why chaos magic is a concept. Uh, and, and, uh, what I mean by this is, is that there's a reason why the information landscape of the newosphere right now is so saturated with so much stuff and so chaotic and so fast and so volatile. And I think that all of these things are existing within this ecosystem of, pure, of, of, of memes. I wouldn't say pure ideas, but of, of, of memetics, pure and simple. I think these these thought creatures. I, I have a I have a a colleague who calls them semio creatures, mm -hmm. creature these creatures of meaning, these creatures of 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 like just like how you're describing these meme complexes which are competing among themselves. I think um, we have to. I think we have to realize that these meme plexes and these these newosphere battles 
are occurring both in what we call the mainstream media and they're also occurring in the sort of wild, wild west of the new sphere. And in our bodies. Sorry? And in our bodies. And in our bodies. Well, they, 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 it's a feedback loop. That, that, I mean, the feedback, the feedback loop on our bodies is what is under theorized in all of the gender and race wars. Because when we're considering the gender and race wars where race and gender are political in a way which they've never really been before, um, these are wars which are kind of being stimulated or provoked by the wild, wild west of the new sphere, where issues of my body and how the memeplexes are interrelating is um, how do you say it? Vicious, um, uh, dis- d- disturbing, um, uh, you know, traumatizing, destabilizing. Yeah, they 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 rupture identity. They rupture identity because they they rupture identity because look, I I didn't pick what body I was born in. Um, I can't do anything about the body I'm appearing in, and these meme plexes are kind of playing with identity in this extremely um, destabilizing way where I think the only result is either you grab tightly onto your identity, like what people are doing, like I am a white man or I am a, a, a black man. Like, Maybe no, you aren't. Maybe no, you aren't either of those things. You, <laughs> you know. Um, but the only, the only, the only other way I can see dealing with these, um, these, these, these challenges of the of the wild, wild west of the new sphere, is to um, radically question identity. Like, like maybe I'm none of these categories. That's that's precisely it. Let me introduce the following in here. Uh, I think that these changes and, and these dynamics, which you so well described in the neosphere, that they are indissociable from uh, geopolitics, meaning that the Enlightenment values of the French Revolution and the concepts of Cartesian identity and within liberalism, the individual being the sovereign subject, um, b- being brought into the being put at the center of this theology of Westernism, of, of uh, what do you call it? Liberalism, Americanism, right? And identity currently is an outcrop, an outgrowth of that. Um, sorry, I'm just, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just becoming a little bit uh, uh, disrupted by the chat, guys. Come on, don't, don't, don't cut my thoughts. But very- in the chat, written, black lives are boring, white lives are boring, no lives matter. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, Daniel, please continue. Geopolitical, because if you look at the West, uh, open information ecologies based on individuals, technology comes in and breaks the individual apart, breaks identity. It cuts it up parametrizes it and feeds it back into the machine to sell attention for profit more accurately, right? And that's why other countries that have different approaches to, let's say, the sacredness of a free information ecology, such as Russia or China, 
they're like, you know, closing, closing their memescape slightly and navigating this with a little heavier hands. Um, and because they are just skeptical of the absolute uh, value of free information economies. Now, if the West sticks with that, then obviously what's going to happen is what you said. It's the death of identity. It's partitioning and, and redistribution along uh, the Lusian lines, but also technological lines, right? The multitudes which contain us and each of our individual libidinal flows are being parametrized by artificial intelligence, being sucked into the, the, capital, um, the capital machine, just finalized. I think it was Dugan, and I obviously come back to Dugan because he's the only one doing like this, this non-liberal critique of this panorama, which gives us like two poles within, within which to analyze. And he says that it is as if the body of the West is being cut up and partitioned so that it becomes chewable by the great machine and the great intelligences and the artificial intelligences that, that are coming in our near future. And I guess that that's, you know, are we witnessing the death of liberalism? How does identity uh, play with geopolitics? How does how do these struggles in Western academia and Western thought relate to 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 this larger geopolitical current? Because even the military uh, industrial complex in America just finalized says the problem with American soft power and how it is so susceptible to information campaigns from Russia and China. The problem is that it, it's philosophical. It's deep. It's, it's on the foundations of the theology of Americanism, which is it's open and perhaps not so well adapted to, to the mimetic battles. I mean, I don't, I, I'm, 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 well, I'm well aware of Russia and China's guardedness when it comes to the free flow of information and their, their sort of, um, you know, reaction formation to the, global internet and, and, and the free flow of information and the challenge to identity. I mean, I think, I mean, I think in the West, what you see because of this is you do have the, the reactionism on the left and the right to identity politics, which is this type of grabbing onto group identity, you know, like, like liberalism is about the individual. Um, and and identity politics is not about the individual, it's about the group. I mean, you as an individual don't matter, the group matters, literally. You know, so it's 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 a kind of and it's interesting, right? Because what are the categories people are group identifying with are are race, race and gender. They're not identifying with nation state like Russia, China. So, and in the past, going back deeper than that people would identify this fiercely about their religious identity. So they would fiercely identify as a Christian or an Islamist. They wouldn't identify by racial or gender categories. They would identify by religious or national categories. Um, so I think what we need is a proper theory, like an actual theory of race and gender. Um, we don't have, we don't have even anything close to a theory of race and gender. Like, but at the same time, what I'm seeing is, is that, the same energy that was expressed in nationalist and religious fervor is now being expressed in racial and gender fervor. And the question is, you know, for me, is that even more real than the national and the religious struggles? Because if you think about it, the racial and the gender struggle is much closer to the idea's relationship with the body. Whereas the national and the religious fervor is very disconnected from the body. 
Whereas the racial and the gender fervor is directly about the body. So it seems like it, it presents a new real, which is even deeper and more real in some sense. And I would, I would hypothesize this is the level of the depth. Race, then gender, deeper. Gender deeper than race. Then deeper than gender, the body itself. So that would be the level I have is you have religion, state, race, gender, body. And so that would mean, if I'm correct about that, then the site of the body itself is when we're dealing with singularity itself. And that brings us to the resurrection of the body itself. Could you, could you expand on that a little bit? Like that, that little scale that you established and why the body is, is the singularity. What do you mean by that? Well, okay. So the difference between us and the, and the other animals, as far as I can tell, is that there's a, a layer of linguistic thought, which we dwell within and which covers the body. It, it, I, I'm, I'm not saying here like a type of stupid dualism of mind and body separation, but a kind of, it's kind of like the body is covered in language. Mm -hmm. it's kind of like the idea or like it maybe use the word idea is better. Like, like we are an idea. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Like, yeah. like it's, it's one thing obviously, but we are an idea and, in history, that idea becomes sort of externalized and, and, and sublimated into a non-bodily idea. You know, like the idea of the nation or the idea of God. Yes, because and the we'll, and we, fight, we fight at holy sites over these ideas. But the more we're sort of brought to face ourselves, you know, what are we, you know, which is, which is the ultimate philosophical question, by the way, what are we? Um, and that's the question that like, basically, you know, Plato and Hegel and Descartes, they wrestle with this idea of our identity. What are we, you know, they don't come to the same conclusion as identity politics, but <laughs> they, they, they wrestle with this idea. Mm -hmm. Now for the pre-modern mind, your religious identity or in the 18th and 19th century, your national identity was absolute. I mean, the way you relate to you being Irish or German, like you die for that idea. You, you're sent to the battlefield for that idea. There is no difference between me and this idea. I'll die for this idea. So as so as this, as, this, as this process has evolved, what I see it coming down to is it's almost like the, we're dividing the idea down to the site of the body itself. So we're disidentifying with, with these abstract notions, even that I'm a scientist or I'm a philosopher or whatever. And we're taking the idea down to the maybe the, the site of the real, what, what we actually are. Um, and, but and there's a paradox process, there. 
Right. There's a paradox there in that also say, say something like whiteness or blackness. It is both going down to the side of the body, but it also is an abstraction upwards in that white is not like the tribes of Europe or of all white people. It's, it's a unifying thing. And precisely because it abstracts out the one common thing to, to all of these, uh, all of these, these bodies. Do you follow what it's, I mean? It's, it's like it's, a, it's a drilling down, but it also it distills in a sense, which I think is abstracting. Ab, abs, abs, absolutely, it's it's all it's always a loop, but the loop the loop is coming closer to the intimate real of what I am. Like, like it, I mean. But you're you're of course right. It, it it it's 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 feeding on a social level. Like there's an abstract category of white, and there's an abstract category of black, or there's an abstract like category of whatever. Abstracting from history because an Irish and a Spanish and a Greek person, totally different historical experiences, which will shape how they be and act in the world. But the white is is an abstraction away from the historical process that maybe that's interesting. Maybe that the body is a historic, perhaps that is the way to formulate this. Mm. Let me add something here. I think that we could even go even further than the body. Uh, go delusion. What is stopping us at the level of the body? I am multitudes. I am uh, today. I was 10 different people, which one of them was real. And how does this, uh, how does reality relate to this network of different flows, especially now that so many of them are, are ignited by all different things that I read and see and, and see on social media and et cetera. So the saturation of information is also producing these feedback loops onto myself, meaning I'm, I, can, I cannot be one. Now, my question, um, tell me what you guys think. My question is not so much which one is real, which one is the real I am, but rather, um, Whichever I am is is in vigor at the moment, uh, the regime in vigor at the moment is the one that you are. Meaning, you know, in, in, in modern in modern times and, and today in the digital era, identity is so malleable. It's so it can go in, in any of those directions that you've mentioned, Cadell, at all those scales. But it can go into into anything. Into I'm a furry. I'm a Manchester United supporter. I'm a Nick Land fan boy readers club member. Um, There's an anxiety about this. There's an anxiety about this nature of identity. That like okay, if we're if we're abstracting to like the level of World of Warcraft or or I don't know whatever you pick whatever where we can actually transform our identity into anything. Um, I can be an elf. I can be an elf. I can be a wizard. I can be a, a monster. I can be all sorts of different things. I could be. Um, I can play out all these identities. The reason why there's such a religious fervor about the race and the gender stuff is because you reach something which I cannot change. Mm -hmm. I can't change this about my myself. So it's something I stick onto, cling onto, because to accept the plasticity of identity to accept the infinite plasticity of identity is too disorienting it's too anxiety provoking but isn't that sort of paradoxical especially in the age where uh freedom from gender is a thing 
where freedom, where, where you can actually identify as anything you want. And there's plenty to choose from. Isn't that a paradox it's as well? A fascinating paradox. It's like <clears throat> the postmodern worldview ends up latching onto the things that can't be pulled apart by postmodernism. Well, bizarrely. The, the paradox, as it seems to me, is that in the gender identity movement where you can identify as any gender, it still brands itself as within the universal hegemony of feminism. Like LGBT plus is seen as feminist. It's like this infinite plasticity of identity is still captured by this, 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 this category of, of feminist. Um, and what it represses is this sexual difference, like the sexual difference between, between men and women. So it escapes this battle with the real of sexual difference in order through the multiplicity of identity, which is under the feminist umbrella. That's so cool. I was reading Camille Paglia recently and her sexual persona. And it's, I think it's really relevant to, to this point of the discussion because she says that biological uh, sexual difference, <clears throat> even if you trace it back to the division of uh, living beings into male and female, even to that point in evolution, that it it have it has been those biological imperatives that have, through time and through evolution and through everything that's happened, led to the differences in even cognition between the sexes. Uh, the the cult of Cybele. Or, or her relationship to wild nature, for example, being something that, let me give you another example. The nature of the erection of urinating and ejaculating uh, uh, is extremely male and correlates to a very male way of thinking, which is, as Pagli argues, uh, indissociable from the fact that men have been the philosophers. It has been men the, to, to perform many actions and tasks throughout the ages because it is so she was establishing this connection there because this projection this going towards and you know there's maybe a root in there to gender or maybe that's another way to speak to your point about this this rootedness of this unchangeability of these categories or rather their their, their ontological fundamentalism that they actually mean something that they're there for a reason that they've evolved for a reason this 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 to me this to me is i think you're key. muted oh am i am i still muted no you're good now oh you know uh this to me is the 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 deep question that was repressed by gender theory is basically sexual ontology mm. and, and this is what's repressed in postmodernism in general which is very concerned with epistemology but not so concerned with ontology you know like and so to me the challenge is if you have the modern ontology, so like, let's frame it within your work, Daniel, of ontological design or ontological creativity. Mm -hmm. um, in the modern world, you have this obsession with ontology of the truth of being, the real of being. Then you have postmodernism, which is basically saying all of these are masculine fantasies. And what you have is a move to reflective epistemology. So let's think about our categories of knowledge and we can change them and make them infinitely plastic. But then you have sort of this, this 
this problem of what is the real? What is truth? What is like, how do I, how do I get any, any stable or any notion of building a developmental or intergenerational identity? Well, all of that, all of that is gone. So mm -hmm. you basic, and, and you have this emphasis on social construction and, and creativity, but it's so impotent. So the question for me is how can we, like, I accept social construction. I accept reflective epistemology. I accept all of that, but how can you actually have a potent construction? How can you have a potent, like, how can we create new realities? Like actually new realities, like let's, let's create new realities. I'm all for it, but how can, like, we don't have a, a proper, I don't know, science of that. And in order to do that, we need to have some sort of real. And for me, I guess where I'm going is, well, let's, let's start with the foundations. Let's start with the th things we can't change at all, which is okay. So let's, and well, we, where we come from sexuality, sexuality is the origin. We can't change that. We can't change that we have sexual bodies. They're sexual from infancy. Mm -hmm. um, we come out of a mother. We can't change that. Not yet. Maybe we can in the future. But as of now, we can't change that. We come out of a, a, a female body. And we create ourselves through the sex act. So let's, that's my thinking is mm -hmm. let's, and that's why I'm saying let's bring knowledge to sexuality. Mm -hmm. let's not be little cowards. Let's not be little boys. Let's be brave. Let's, let's, okay, let's erase our, all of our identities, all the stupid ways we identify with however we're born. Let's start with what is sexuality? And, and let's work with that as, as, as the ground. And let's, 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 let's discover what we can create. This, this was, what do you make of the critique raised by um, Foucault in the history of sexuality, right, where he's kind of arguing that pre-sexual revolution in the 1960s, there was this scientific effort to make sex speak, if you will, to delineate sex within the categories of language. And then after the sexual revolution, we were supposedly freeing ourselves from that, but actually there was still this emphasis on making sex speak, perhaps in a different language, perhaps not in a symbolic language, but still Letting it express itself is the key thing. I asked this because you've uh, you've used the, the formulation, let's bring knowledge to sexuality. And I'm wondering, like, A, do you think there's weight in, uh, in Foucault's critique? And um, B, what would it mean to bring knowledge to sexuality in a way that isn't the way that it was done, say, 19th century? Okay, so... The main, the, there is a deep truth in Foucault in regards to the fact that um, there's something about sexuality which is uncategorizable. Like we're never going to have permanent clear categories, which is like, this is like, like man and woman, like that, like it's all resolved. Like we're never, we're never going to have anything like, you know, uh, these absolute categories which don't change. There's something about sexuality which is too inherently chaotic, which is too, it, it eludes any attempt to put it into a cage. So in that sense, there's something deeply true about the 1960s rebellion against clear categories. And there's something true about 
Foucault's attempt to sort of historicize our sexual categories, if that makes sense. But at the same time, we can't escape the loop of language. Um, yep. we, can't, we can't escape it. So, so all I'm trying to say is that we need to find, and also there is a negative relationship between knowledge and sexuality. So for example, and I don't think that this is social construction. I think that this is somehow a, a true feature of what we are. Like, I mean, going back to the Genesis story, like as soon as Adam and Eve are self-conscious, they cover up. There's something about our sexuality, which is um, antagonistic with knowledge, let's say, which is why families are built on sexuality. But at the same time, you can't talk about it while you're in the family. There's taboos about it. So what I'm trying to say is basically we need to be able to have spaces, free spaces, open spaces where we can talk, where we can just talk freely and openly about sexuality and let's see what categories make sense, but they're always going to be temporal containers. I like this. This, I mean, this reminds me of like what we have been doing in men's work. It feels like perhaps a shift away from a, um, a psychiatrization or just a, a mere kind of third person scientific attempt to, to codify sexuality, moving it into the, uh, the socio analytical space, right? What we've been doing in, in men's work is, is literally in a men's circle where you do a kind of free association around the topic of each other's experiences and understanding and personal problematics surrounding sexuality. I mean, I think that just, just that act in itself is revolutionary in the sense that if you think about most married couples or if you think about most, most people in general, I mean, even people who claim to be free with their sexuality, when it comes to talking directly about my sexuality, people will freeze up, you know, like people will, will tighten up. People will feel an anxiety about that. Like there can be married couples who have been married for decades and have never talked about sexuality. There can be people who are polyamorous or whatever, totally open and free with sexuality. But if you get them to talk about their sexuality and what they're doing, they'll get anxiety, they'll freeze up about it. So how can we, how can we build the spaces where people can feel free to talk about the real problems they're having with their sexual energy? And let's not try to make sexuality fit into language, but let's try to build languages which reflect the real of our emotional experience. Mm. <clears throat> I think that it's interesting that as an answer to the question that you posed, we now end up at the scale of me, you, no one, as, as us, as opposed to larger, larger containers, because there are no larger containers. The old containers have been shattered and the water has been, you know, there's a lot of electric tendrils connecting to that water, i.e. libido, trying to monetize it. And vessels don't work anymore, or we don't have them, or it's, it's a complicated affair. And again, it's interesting that it, it all falls back down to this 
What about you? What about your expectations? What about your will? How does that relate to your sexuality? And um, I think unfortunately or unfortunately, or maybe it's just a feature of how things are, can, to be a container maker, container in this metaphorical sense that we are talking about right now, is not, is not something that uh, is, is archetype, but it's, it's something for a few people. It's an archetype of, of the jurist priest and the magician king. It's not for everyone. Uh, the concept creators, the shamans, the artists, they're a subset of the population. Most people, uh, especially in civilization, there's been kind of this eugenic turn towards that. Most people live inside the containers and it's okay and it's normal. Uh, so this, this, this question of, of agency, let us talk about our sexuality or, or let us try to have a conversation about that and, and invent new languages. Yes, we do. But who is this we? Uh, I don't know. That's one question that comes to mind. It has to be. It has to be the emer. It has to Idel, be. Idel, you're muted emer- again, buddy. Oh, sorry. I, I unmute. I unmuted no, myself. Now I can hear you. Okay. I, the question of the we is the question of the people who are basically tired of living a a double life and who are willing to speak the most intimate parts of themselves ultimately and that process itself is the is the german of agency it feels like when heidegger defines being as the being for whom being is a question or the entity for whom uh, being is a question who is this we that discusses sexuality it is the we for whom sexuality is a problem or something to speak yeah. about so again self reflectivity being yeah. Not the vessel, but the archetypal process. Right. Yeah, the degree to which people put themselves in vessels unconsciously is the norm. Yeah. Now, the, 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 the recognition that these vessels don't work anymore is also unconscious. People aren't conscious that this is happening. People, like... Again, people in the modern dating landscape are not using the old words anymore, but they're unconscious of the fact that this is the new norm. They're unconscious that this process is the new norm. So those who have become conscious of this problem are the ones who will gravitate towards trying to be the germs of solving it. But it's, 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 it's not going to have, it's not a linear problem solution dynamic. It's yeah. kind of... It's kind of the, it's if you, if you have recognized this and if you have come into the spaces where this is being languaged, you are basically entering a infinite loop of crazy identity transformation potentially because you're playing because you're playing and real identity transformation. Like this is like, let's get more real. Let's grow teeth. Let's become something crazy real. Um, let's stop living in this madhouse of shadows, and which is which is basic. And you see all the shadows come out of the modern families. You see all the shadows come out of the modern the the, the modern intimate structures. They're all dysfunctional. They're universally dysfunctional. Let's universalize the dysfunction. We're all dysfunctional. There's look you. In order to have these conversations, the starting point is my lack. My lack. Not my potency. My lack. There you can start and that 
there's no rest- you can you can say everything and let and and don't 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 underestimate how powerful of an identity catalyst this is because mm-hmm. think about think about how when someone's in an intimate long-term relationship and the other dies when that happens that person wants to die like i've had so many conversations with the typical traditional man who's been in a long-term marriage and i ask him if your wife dies what will will you be able what will be your response and and most of the men say i just want to die like i wouldn't want to live without this other so think about how powerful it is how brave it is if you start in lack and you say and you just use this as a motor you just use this as an identity catalyst it will drive you people's identities are built on how they use their sexual energy so if you're willing to confront that in language you are going to become something very other than so anything than anything history has seen completely that it feels like you're that that lack at the core being this this part of the energy engine mm-hmm. is a very interesting concept is it like lacan or hegel or zizek or something like that it's lacan right the lack yeah i would i would i would say in the psycho in this in the way i'm using it it's a lacanian notion okay. so what the origins of this power of lack you could say does get fully mobilized in hegel's dialectic because the ultimate master for hegel is death so hegel says you reach the truth of your identity in death now hegel's dialectic now you can bring death into life and you yeah. can mobilize death as a force in life now in in the lacanian interpretation it goes deeper because it goes he's he's grounding it in our sexual energy where basically basically it's you find a language beyond phallic discourse mm-hmm. and this is what foucault doesn't identify foucault is just anti language but that's absurd you can't get out of language but what lacan's able to do is almost develop a phallic discourse outside of the phallus so 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 he it's like he, <laughs> yeah, he's identif- identified this kind of black hole absolutely there's yeah. a black hole which things eventually trickle out of that black or, or they they have a way of establishing themselves in relationship to that lack and that is constitutive of the personality so at the center of every self there's like a lack how does that play into like schizoanalysis and this this because the problem with postmodernism and 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 the the problem with this like this psychotic turn in philosophy is this uh, inability to know anything about the real so identity can just become anything Fair and enough. at the same time at the same time it's the most impotent absolutely fair enough i'll give you that it makes sense what i was going to bring is is you know there's one black hole there's one lack and there's many lacks many lacks is is individual is is schizo analysis is the losing individual the losing individual lack lack is lack is 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 individual it's psychoanalysis it's very modern it's very almost freudian in a way i don't know if this is making sense but <clears throat> here's, the, here's the thing is that 
that for for someone for someone like Hegel, death is like what what it's like the the univ it's like the anti ideal which unifies us all somehow because mm. we all confront death. We're all finite mortal creatures. And then in psychoanalysis, now in psychoanalysis, of course, Freud, Freud really doesn't engage with Hegel. Like he mentions Hegel like one or two times in footnotes, but it's not anything important to pay attention to. In Freud, we're dealing with individual subjects and their battle with the idea in the body. Mm -hmm. And then the limits of psychoanalysis, I think, are brought out in Lacan where we have to think a type of the social consequences of psychoanalysis. And that hasn't really been done. Because it comes back. It comes back. It's hyperstitional. It, it, by being said, becomes, it becomes true. I have, I have one. The real, our here's what's crucial in Freud and in Hegel, is that the real and our language are loops. You can't, you like, there's this fantasy in science that the real exists out there and that we're going to approach it with our language. Like that the real exists already and that we'll use our language, our signifiers to catch it. Okay. Let me ask you. Know? you Whereas in this, in Hegel and Freud, that doesn't make any sense because it's looped up. Yeah. It's, it's this, this subject-object continuum, this Heideggerian uh, hermeneutics. Um, one question, I'm not going to like qualify it or classify it, and maybe, maybe after we jump into that. One death or many deaths? Yeah. Um, can, I, can, I, can I say, can I say, I, I mean, look, this is a difficult topic. I almost like, it's such like, it's almost like, can we have a conversation about it? But in some, in some ways, in some ways, it's both. Because I would say on the level of the real, one death. But on the level of the metaphor, many deaths. Like, if you mobilize death metaphorically, you can have many deaths. And in some sense, you know, we're, in some sense, we're always dying and being reborn. But of course... In terms of the, the realist level, there's one death, which is that we're, we're all going to face that. We're all going to face that. Mm -hmm. And we all have faced that. And every human that's ever been born has faced that. Reminds me, I picked up a book by um, Chogyam Trungpa, the Tibetan Buddhist teacher the other day, right? He's got this great line, disappointment is the chariot of the Dharma. And the way he explains it is that disappointment is this beautiful gift along the spiritual path because it is, it kind of kills you in a sense. We have our expectations. We have our fantasy structures. We walk along with this sense of I am this person and I'm going into this situation and this is going to happen or this is what I want to happen. And when it doesn't play out that way, that whole story we had, that whole identity we had is fractured fragmented yeah. and so he's saying make this disappointment the very core of your uh, of your spiritual journey but he then also makes this this interesting point and he says this isn't to then turn this into a kind of naive optimistic acceptance of all fate it's not to go around saying that 
everything shit that happened to you was the will of God. It was supposed to happen to you. So you'll accept it. It's like, actually, no, no, embrace the disappointment, embrace the fact that things radically didn't work out. And that was quite painful. And that's, I think like where the, uh, the tradition of the, of the Eastern crazy wisdom teachers comes from in the same, in the same essay, Trump oh, it's actually a speech he gave, but it's turned into an essay. He's talking about throughout their, uh, the Tibetan mythology. There's always stories of these great teachers who wanted to go and learn from a great master. And they traveled across the land to the great master in search of the great teaching, the great texts. And then the master basically says, no, fuck off. Or you need to build me a load of houses and then they make the houses and then they have to take the houses down and they says, make them again and take them out. And it seems there's nowhere in sight. And the student gets more and more frustrated and more and more pissed off with their master until they reach a point where they're like, he's got nothing to teach me. He's just a fucking joker. There's, there's nothing to gain from this guy. And then the master is right there and says, ha, now you're ready to learn. You've let go. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great story. There's a, there's a, and, and like the equivalent of the equivalent of the disappointment that you're talking about in Hegel is failure. But, um, yeah, but it's the same basic idea. And like, for example, there's another story of a, of a yogi master who recognized he had a very, um, he had a very, um, promising student who had a lot of potential, but he was idealizing the master. So what he told the student to do was go out into the mountains for seven years and then come back. And so the student does that, listens to the master, and he goes out into the mountains for seven years, and then he comes back, and immediately he looks for the master, and the master wasn't there. He said, you have to go back for another seven years. You're not ready. Like, he didn't get it. He didn't get it. Like, it took him seven <laughs> years, still looking back for the master. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah, and it, but don't we see so much in the... Um the the contemporary like spiritual landscape is people seeking seeking for a master seeking for the teacher seeking for a, a good person who you can really look up to and it's the same thing people play into their same projections which is why you end up with these cults of gurus who who end up like having to project that i am a perfect elevated there, human being there is a dialect there is an important dialectical relationship between let's the master and the servant or the master and the slave now what the distinction I like is because to some degree, a master is necessary. Like an infant does need a parent, right? And kids do need a teacher. And, 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 there, and, and in some sense, you know, at every stage of life, we need some older person to, to it's, it's useful to have some older person to help guide us. The distinction I like is that a good master will give the servant back to himself or herself. He won't, the bad master will try to get you to identify with him or her. Like, I, like almost like you're trying to suck someone's identity. And you know what? This is really common, unfortunately. And it's always, to me, the marker and a red flag. Whenever, I, whenever there's older, older academics or whatever who are, who, are, who are interacting with me, I always pay attention to whether they unconsciously want me to identify with their system. If they unconsciously want me to identify with their system, it's like red flag, I'm not going to do that, sorry. And it creates so much tension and so much conflict in my life, but it's also how I build a new identity. Because I'm not going to identify with someone else's system, I'm going to create my own and I'm gonna figure it out on my own path. What would be some red flags? Well, the red, the, red the red flag would be if, like, for example, 
well, I don't want to give any too personal examples, but like the red flags would be if you have an older academic who seems to be more concerned with you mimicking his system than so like using his concepts and yeah, using the concepts, then he's concerned with you and your problems and your difficulties. Like if a master is concerned with you, like for example, I can say, for example, what Zizek told me when I met him in Ljubljana. Zizek told me, you're going to figure out with your own imminent logic. That's a good, that's a good master. He's not trying to get me to identify with him. He's saying, you'll figure it out with your own imminent logic. That's a good master. He's not saying you must use my concepts. Do you understand my concepts? Well, like I had, mm. a, I had a supervisor who was only concerned that I use his concepts. Are you using my concepts? Are you citing my work? This is a bad master. He doesn't care at all about me. He only concerns his only concern is that I am a vessel or a vehicle for his concepts. Right? Like if I was, like if I was to like if I was to interact with either of you on the basis of, did you read my book and are you going to cite it? Like, are you going to are you going to are you going to faithfully follow my concepts? That would be absurd. It would be ridiculous. I don't care. Like, if you get something interesting from my work, fantastic. But create your own goddamn thing. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I want to ask you something. Um, we mentioned this lack at the center of the personality uh, as, as the engine <clears throat> from which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, desire emerges to fulfill that lack, kind of this negative magnetism. Absolutely. Okay, and this, this takes us back to Socrates because Socrates said that desire functions on lack. And, 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 and advertising knows that all too well. Uh, to generate desire, you invent a lack. It's very interesting. So <clears throat> how does, you know, the acceptance of that lack, the acceptance of disappointment or failure, how does that fit in? Is that equatable with sovereignty? How do you, how do you, how does this map into? into yeah. For, well, for, for Hegel, that would be his theory of freedom uh -huh. is that like basically any strong identification is a cage. You need identity, but it's a process of identity. Mm -hmm. So anytime you take an identity and you make it what you are, absolutely, which is what the identity politics does, then you're creating a cage for yourself. Mm -hmm. And you're actually, you're actually harming yourself. I mean, I've got so many examples where I've seen identity politics people literally destroy themselves with these identities. Because they, they take them too seriously and they, they cling on to them too much and they actually do harm to the people that they're trying to liberate. Mm -hmm. You know, but if... if Tell if, me one of those examples. That, so for, okay, so I can, a bit more. I, can get, I can give an example of a feminist house that I, I mean, I was, that I, I knew well intimately. So it was four women. Three of the women were identity politics. One of the women was not identity politics. The three women, who, so the one woman who wasn't identity politics was uh, a, a midwife 
who actually was helping women in her work because she's a midwife. That's what she does. She's identified a real problem that women actually struggle with, and she's dedicated her life to helping women in that process, which is the deepest process you could help women with. The other three women were activist feminists who actually didn't even pay any attention to the knowledge of the midwife. They didn't care about it. They only cared about their activist ideology, which made them useless because the only thing they were good at was throwing hysterical tantrums. They weren't good at actually helping women with anything. You know, like if you want to help women develop, like develop your identity in relationship to an actual problem that women are struggling with. <laughs> What's the lack at the core of a pathological identitarian? And I know the word pathological is weird, but I can't find a better one. How does the lack relate to their system of identity versus the lack at the core of someone uh, whose system of identity is perhaps less dramatic? The, here's the, the notion I like is the notion, the, the most helpful notion I have is, and this comes from Slavoj Žižek's work, it's even the central thesis of less than nothing, which in my opinion is his masterwork. And he even said less than nothing is his masterwork. And also less than nothing and absolute recoil are probably his two masterwork. Anyway, the central thesis of less than nothing in some sense is that there is no big other. That's the first level. There's another level. We don't need to go into it. The first level is there is no big other. And the big other is a figure of the symbolic order, which presents itself to you as consistent and coherent. Okay. The big other is a figure of the symbolic order, which presents itself to you as coherent and consistent. <clears throat> what Zizek is saying is there is no such big other. So what the identity politics does is they try to, they try to develop a universally coherent and consistent theory of identity. And, and it's not, it's inconsistent, it's incoherent, which is all the anti-identity politics people are saying. Your, your system is contradictory, your system is incoherent, your system runs into all sorts of paradoxes, and we need to think through these paradoxes. We can't just remain our identity clinging to these identities. That's a trap. What's the role of a big other, symbolic or, or otherwise, in the maintenance of an identity and its relationship to lack and to desire and how it emerges? Because it feels like in this interplay, in the triangulation, there's something to be. So we can go into the deeper levels of the thesis, but the, on the first level of there is no big other, what the big other does is mm -hmm. it functions to create a universe of meaning which can sustain a human being throughout their entire life. But it's basically using their energy as a vehicle for its reproduction, its virtual reproduction. The big other. The big other, yes. So like, for example, like the, the Christian God or the American nation, the American nation is a big other. Um, a so science is a big other. Capitalism is a big other. And it gets identities to filter all of their life energy through its reproduction. Mm -hmm. Like if I believe in capital and I'm an agent of capital, then I'm using my energy on a day-to-day -day basis for the reproduction of capital, or I'm using my energy on a day-to-day -day basis for the reproduction of the idea of the nation state of America. 
right? And I believe, and like, for example, for the hardcore American nationalist, they will get angry if you point out any incoherence or any inconsistency in the American nation. Like, for example, you point out, oh, America is based on slavery. America is based on genocide. They'll immediately get upset because you're breaking their big other image. And uh, does this- We're the best country in the world, bro. But the same, for example, for a feminist identity, if you point out inconsistencies or incoherence in the feminist identity narrative, they'll get upset. Is this big other? Then you're uh, patriarchal, then you're inherently oppressing women, right? Right. But then it's alternatively for the, for the traditionalist man to to like strongly identify with patriarchy. It's all, it's, it's ultimately the same thing. Does this big other need to, um, to be explicitly acknowledged or can it work uh, sub- subliminally as an implied uh, thing that takes care of identity? It totally, it, it probably, probably in the postmodern world, it, it operates more on an unconscious level than on an, on a, on an explicit identity level. Like yeah. in, 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 and that's the more insidious dimension even. Yeah. So one thing is to, there, there's a big other with a name that you can, understand and the other one is the hidden or processually decentralized big other yeah absolutely and i think obviously the to me the best example of that is is capitalism capitalism is a fantastic big other because it's so hard to escape it like like zizek says it functions even if you don't believe in it yeah exactly it (laughs) runs better on critiquing it uh it loves it so I'm, i'm very interested on this on the unconscious superorganisms or big others, because it's not just because you don't look at them doesn't mean they don't work and they don't don't continue to be these scaffoldings, these scaffoldings collective of identity of how people invent. And that's why I was bringing the term new political or semi-creatures, like you said, right? Because they have existential consequences, repercussions for for how identities get built. It's, it's through them that the desire that emerges from the lack goes and figures out the world and does its stuff to basically maintain a consistent and persistent identity, which it seems like it's really essential to, for humans. And would you say? It's, it's, it's the, the kind of like the kind of the next level of like going deeper into this notion is that even though there is no big other, the idea is is that there is a non-other, which is to to give that to give that like a deeper level. It's kind of like, like for example, the best way I've seen it described is with sexual difference. So there is no union between masculine and feminine, but there is a non-union, which means basically that you have to work tension between man and woman, like or you have to work tension between masculine and feminine. You can't put them into one, but you still have to build the tension. So like the equivalent of that with the big other on a deepest level would be, would be probably your own relationship with death. Like there is a non other. So there is no big other. So basically there is no figure of in the, in the new politics, there is no figure in the new sphere that can be your identity for you and give you coherence. Yeah. But there is a non-other, which is your own work with death itself. 
Oh, okay. So, so the authentic man, as opposed to this man, something to that, to that effect. Yeah. That's how I would articulate it, but yeah, that, that's how I would articulate it. Basically that's at, at least as deep as I've gotten with it. Hmm. Is there a sense in which like in day-to-day psychic life, you can't escape the presence of a big other because there needs to be something that assists with decision-making some kind of categorical framework. What is the right thing to do? And whether we make a moral or ethical judgment, we, we weigh up what is the best thing to do. And even if it's something that we frame it in our own world in terms of a utilitarian decision, even that utilitarian logic is a kind of big other to do the most good for the most people. Well, to do, to definitely to do the most good for the most people is a kind of, it, it, it's, it's itself its own kind of ideology. Um, Hence why I use the term big other. I mean, I always kind of felt big other was synonymous with ideology. Yeah, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. Um, it's like, just don't, it, it, it's that even though we can't escape the existence of big others, certainly not at the present moment, um, the way to deal with them, I think, is basically pragmatically and not to identify too much with them, to keep a gap. Like, mm. if you keep a gap between yourself and the big other, you don't identify with it too much. The only way it can get you is if, like, you're forced to identify with it, which is which is not really the case today. Like, you're not really, like, if you were in Nazi Germany, you would kind of be forced to be a Nazi, or, like, you would force, you'd be forced to identify as a certain way. But, like now, if you take, if you become more conscious, you don't have to identify with these things. You can keep a gap. And I think that the best mechanism I find to deal with these is like with humor, like jokes. Um, and, what, and to, yeah. What, what, what's the difference between uh, discourse as Foucault uses it and ideology as Zizek uses it? And are they merely sort of having to do with 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 epistemics and how people actually attribute value to things, or 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 do you think that there is an ontological property of them? In other words, what's the impact that they have on the constitution of of ontology? I think that the difference is in the relationship to on. I think that the difference in Foucault and Zizek's notion is in relationship to ontology and and the real. So like. For Foucault, he's kind of like, for Foucault, again, like the example Zizek would give is that everything's a relative, relativistic discursive regime. So if you ask questions like, what is immortality? He would say like, it would depend on the discursive regime you're talking about, the construction of immortality and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas for Zizek, we have to approach real ontological questions. Like... Yeah. What is immortality as a real, like, no, what is the real of immortality, not just a relativistic discursive regime? Yeah. And so, like, Zizek is more interested in the imminence of the idea itself. Like, like, for, exa like for example, immortality as an imminent notion. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, as that idea which ha wants to manifest itself through very discursive regimes. Uh, as not as the name immortality, but that which wants to manifest itself uh, throughout the, down through the emanations 
sometimes with discursive regime A, sometimes with discursive regime B. So it's kind of like how Bard refers to God. Huh? It's kind of like how Alexander Bard refers to God. Mm-hmm. Like that just because God doesn't exist, it doesn't mean it can't exist. It's kind of like an imminent idea. Okay, what does imminent mean in this context? What do you mean by that? It's like um, include like so obviously if you think if you think reality is what actually exists, yeah. if reality is what actually exists, then what you're what you're not seeing is the potential of the notion. So yeah. but if you in, if you include if you include the potential of the notion into the real, then I mean, there's a lot that needs to be accounted for in the notion. Like, there's a lot in the notion which isn't actual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it wants to be actual. I mean, there's a lot, like, for example, like, if you take, for example, like, let me use a ridiculous example. Um, but it's not so ridiculous since it's, like, so much in the movie universe. Like, take, for example, the superhero movie universe. Like, in my ideal, like, I want to be some combination between Spider-Man and Human Torch. You know, something, cra- something crazy. But look at what I actually am. The gap between me and my notion is huge. And I don't have the methods, I don't have the tools to transform myself into Spider-Man and Human Torch. But who's to say what is possible in the imminence of the, in the, imminence of the notion? I mean, to me, like, to me, what, what is possible with, for example, genetic engineering, nanotechnology, atomic manufacturing, uh, uh, artificial intelligence, all of these technologies, all of these technologies are the materiality of the idea itself. Yes, yes, I understand. So imminence in the sense that <clears throat> it's a becoming, it's a verb. Right. Almost. Right. Hmm. And so, to to, I just you know, whenever I hear this word, I come to the word amenitizing the eschaton or the eschaton or eschatology, whatever, <clears throat> as 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 such an interesting idea. But beyond that, um, I feels like a synonym <clears throat> for that word would also be hypothesis. In other words, the newsphere is different because it's already existent, but the realm of that which is not yet, the realm of the potential, as it becomes real, there's a sort of seeping down through the materiality of the idea. For example, you mentioned all these new technologies that might enable you to one day become Spider-Man. It's very interesting because for me, it rhymes, I I hear echoes of both Heidegger and uh, the Kabbalah in there. And because what they actually produced was kind of a, at least in my mediocre understanding was a systematization of how that process of potential to real actuality. Absolutely. Heidegger's problem with the temporal, with the temporalization of being is basically, um, you know, he destroys ontology so that we can think what is possible. (sighs) Yes. And that's why he has to go recursive sometimes. So that's why he has to point at, at and use these weird words and talk about like being is that for whom being is a question. So what, what does that point towards? It, it leaves us bereft of scaffolding, but precisely that's his, that's why he constructs these words. 
I mean, it requires it requires that the subject loses the world absolutely, so that it can actually think the potential. Like, don't like he like for example, like when a subject is all like sort of, um, it can't see itself because it's 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 just got these conceptual scaffoldings which have been sort of fit into it. Like, uh, it doesn't matter what the conceptual scaffolding is in some sense. Like when we, when we, when we presume, like when we presume physics and chemistry and biology as they are, we, we totally, we totally miss the creation or the process of these things. And that is more important to think today now more than ever. Fuck, I lost my thought. I was going to say something. Oh, yeah. And a sufficiently strong experience of that might have been what once was meant by initiation. Right. And well, I, I, think, I, think, I think for me, I think for me, the best tools to connect you with that might not be to read Being in Time, but to take a mega dose of ayahuasca or something. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, that's one way. One way. That's one way. <laughs> yeah, sure. You can also you can also <laughs> you can also read being in time, you know, but, but most most people aren't going to do that. Uh, here's 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 what's interesting in in this in this because the question of of sort of a let me bring it back to the beginning the question of a proper theory or or, or of of race and gender I don't know if that's precisely how you formulated it uh, is indissociable from the question of of being and that's that was what Heidegger said to the whole history of philosophy is like the way that it comes to be. Uh, invents how it's going to to actually end up manifesting and so let me try to see if i can make sense um his attack on the hermeneutics and his sort of focus on the process and trying to trying to flesh out how being can be conceptualized by those who already are and really trying to struggle with this problem is to me trying to unpack something uh that is precisely imminent uh, sorry imminent not that is something that is, is is very important to solve this question that you posed at the beginning of the podcast right because remember we we came to the conclusion midway uh, that it's something very much of me and my lack and how i relate to my desire that we can then build towards perhaps a theory of race and gender and all these other things that we try to keep society coherent with and that experiential, really phenomenological experience of being, as formulated by Heidegger, seems very important to do that. And it also seems like what he's doing is, is just, okay, I'm going to be like really far out here, so don't blame me for it. He's going, he, he was almost like uh, remembering a European pagan initiatic tradition in in his time and in our time, meaning using tools of philosophy and all that to really drive people towards an a felt embodied sense of being that would perhaps thrash all the scaffoldings and, and or at least that's what I feel he referred to at the basis of, of, of all the unfoldings. And naturally he goes into technology afterwards because he was like, yeah, technology just again, is, is how the, the imminent hypothesizes and becomes actual. I don't know if I'm using words in the wrong way here. No, I think, I think you're, ca I think you're capturing 
I think you're capturing Heidegger's project. How how I would how I would formulate it, I guess, is that for Heidegger, we never really solved the problem of the like the Dasein, our being in the world as as time. We never really we never really thought that problem deeply enough. And and so you know, basically, like Heidegger is saying, look. Time is different than space. It doesn't matter. You can imaginarize, like Einstein did, you can imaginarize that time is space. Like you can imagine that and you can make that mathematically coherent. You can create, you can create a big other general relativity. We know it's inconsistent though. We know general relativity is inconsistent. Like, we, okay, so Einstein's the greatest genius ever, but he created a big other which is inconsistent. Mm-hmm. So, and he did that by imaginarizing time as space. But what Heidegger is saying is, look, time is not space. Time is a mystery. Indissociable from being and how it unfolds. Absolutely. And Deleuze is saying, Deleuze is saying more or less the same thing with his notion of becoming. Like, he's basically doing the same thing to, you know, Plato and Aquinas or whoever, like, basically saying, look, everything you think is being is becoming. Yeah. It's a fall. It's the fall. It's the, it's the fall. fall. It's the fall. As per and, the- and, 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 and where, where there's just this confusion and ridiculous confusion between Hegel and Deleuze is that Hegel's dialectic is the becoming of the notion between something and nothing. That's Hegel. The becoming of the notion between something and nothing. It's it's it has to operate between this something and nothing to actually have the polarity to unfold. Absolutely, that's through the dialectical oppositions through time, which which time is a feature of worldly human perception. That's something that, that I like to say, meaning that we cannot perceive by definition outside of time, outside of space, and beyond death. And that's that's sort of also something that we cannot do away with in equal measure to race and gender or sex, however you want to use that word. Cause it's kind of these, there are these constraints, the prison of the body, the prison of time, the prisons of space and the prison of nothingness and death feels here's, like. Here's, here's, here's the question. Here's like, maybe it's a Heideggerian question. I don't know. Is what is the bot? Like, so I said, I said, for example, gender, race, body. So what is gender? What is race and what is body given time? It's a huge mystery. That's a huge question. It's a huge mystery. The patternings of becoming. These are patterns of becoming. Becoming happens to <clears throat> go through these. I happen to have five fingers. Five fingers. Why race and gender? I mean, I know why you do that, but like, I don't know. It feels like these common places that that the becoming uh, actually tends to go through. Am I incorrect? What's well, I think. Okay. I mean, can, can you can you can you reformulate that? No, I was trying to, to to give an answer. Meaning, um, they are often traveled paths of the becoming patterns becoming as a flow, not as a thing, tends to do more or less something like this most of the time. And uh, each of its movements flows, you know, 
some, beco some becomings are patterned in female polarities and others in male polarities and others in something else. Well, let, let's, let me, let, let's, let's say, let's say it with, let's say it with the, 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 the way patriarchy formulated the notion of man. It created the ultimate man, God. Like it, the idea wants that. Like, like when I say like, what is the body? Like, what is the body? When, what is the body when I want to be Spider-Man and Human Torch combined, or my friend wants to be Dr. Manhattan? Oh, God damn it. That's what cool. Is, what, is, what is the body? Let me focus on something that you said there, because it, it might really help. The idea wants that. Yeah, the idea wants that. Okay, what does that mean? Like, when you think about, like, when you think about humans, when you think about, it, like, gender... And you think about it as it exists right now, you can't, you're not, you can't see, you can't see because you can't see the potential. Like you're just thinking, like you're just seeing what is. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a de-libidinal universe. It's a universe where the libido is not there. It's a, it's a universe where desire isn't there. So it's a picture, not a movie. It's just a still frame of what is, but it's not like the libido want, like think about Oops, how yeah. crazy you are when you're in the libidinal rush. You want that. Like and that's it's real. That's it's, 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 it's monstrous what the idea wants. It's, it's very, I, I like where you're going with this because if we take much of what has been said by us throughout this conversation, and even the other day you mentioned kind of this <clears throat> gravitational pull, hidden hand, hidden big other throughout history or the non-other throughout history. It is an idea that wants to be had, not necessarily, you know, as a, as a picture that now we put in the history books, and there's a next page, no, rather exactly. this, this chthonia, how do I say this? It's this Chthonian, uh, it's a living, libidinal, breathing, multidimensional beast with 10 eyes and the head of a lamb. Absolutely. It's <laughs> monstrous. Historical arc. And when you, when we look at philosophers like Hegel and the phenomenology of the spirit, how the spirit perceives and, and emerges as phenomena that to me is what I hear when you say the idea wants something that there's the potentiality becomes like Heidegger also says the same thing with being. And as it becomes, uh, and we in frame how it becomes through technology and through our creations and through our words, and there's ways to mediate that. I think Deleuze also says something similar when he, when he talks think, about, think about, let's think about this. Let's think about religion in an interesting way. Okay. Not in a moralizing way. So yeah. think about the fantasy of having 72 virgins mm -hmm. and I'll die for that. And like, I'll die for that image of having 72 virgins. <clears throat> the idea wants that and it's not going to stop. It's just going to keep going until it finds a way to do it. More, even more. There's such a complex grammar. The idea manifests through 72-ness. 
Time manifests itself through fiveness, sevenness. This is constitutive of, of how it seeps down into reality. It, it's meaningful. That's why numerology is not. I don't, even, I don't even know why 72. I have no idea why they picked There's the a seven. thing there. There's an occult like, <laughs> to that number somehow. Like you just mythology of 72. And there's like a bunch of new agey people talking about that. But, but why do they speak about that? Why 72? Why 7, 12? And, 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 and even the functions fulfilled by saying 72 virgins. You know, the, the typical top hat atheist would say, well, so that they can actually trick people. Rather, it's, it's, it's much more than that. It's the way that being unfolded during that moment, that, that, that semi-creatures, that, that's the body they f- we fashioned for them to manifest through in that specific moment in time. And those bodies that we fashioned for them, these ve- vessels of memes and culture, they are fashioned by us. Therefore, they are extensions of us. Therefore, they reflect our lack or acceptance thereof. They reflect our desires. They, ref- they are fashioned in the, in the shape of a big other because they are the antennas through which we relate to potentiality, to outsideness. Uh, yeah. And you can read a lot into it. You can read, you can perhaps learn a lot from these perhaps seemingly innocuous, simple things like, you know, 72 virgins die in battle, you'll get them. It's like, try to think, not, not just like, like for example, the, the pre-modern or the modern mind would reify one of these big others into the idea. Like, for example, the Islamic God is the God or something like that, or like, you know, something like that. Think about the horizon of this monster, this libidinal historical monster, as it is in itself, which is incredibly strange. Like there's simultaneously the idea, like think about the imminence of the idea of Islam. Everyone on the planet as Islamic, everyone under the planet as under a unified submission to Allah. Simultaneously, there's the idea of world communism. Everyone in a communist utopia everyone in some sort of you know free free for all of identity in like a communist bonfire or something like that that's simultaneously actual on this planet there are so many competing notions of universality and this is all imminent to the idea and they they, they all the becoming of them is to amenitize the eschaton the or i don't know how to pronounce it to amenitize this end and end of history, end of time, to, man, to monetize death here now, to make the potential fully real and fully fulfilled, which it never does in nature. It never does. Never does in nature. Never does in nature. It's, yeah, nature it's, it's good it's, enough to get by. It's, it's, it's a, I like the notion of incomplete ontology. Yeah. Like, and well, the, one of the books I would recommend is by Terrence Deacon called Incomplete Nature. And the central notion of incom- the, the central notion of incomplete nature is the idea of absentials. The idea of absentials is that what is absent has just as much effect on what is pre- on what is present as what's present. Like you can never just know what you can never know the actuality of a situation by what is present. You also have to know the actuality of a situation by also what is absent. What's the imminence or the uh, best case scenario of academia and these instruments of knowledge as they relate to today 
to our question uh, to our uh, struggle and then two how does the same question apply to gender and race I, I don't know if I fully understand the first question. Yeah, no. So you did two things there, right? You were talking about how the, the, the best case scenario for world communism is a whole world under communism in this in this super. I mean, that's 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 in the communist idea. Yeah. Same with Islam, right? Yeah. Yeah. You call this the imminence of the idea, if I'm correct. Yeah. But who knows how to think all of the ecology of this madness? Yeah. Yeah. The fully fulfilled potentiality. So how does that look like for a theory of race and gender? How does that look like? for uh academia how does that look like for us here now like let's let's fuck around with that a little bit i think that okay so i think that in, in academic knowledge right now you have basically the ideology that we should all take as primary for our identity the races and the genders that we are like that we should we should strongly identify with them but i would say it would be more interesting to see race and gender from the position from the from the point of view of um, both incompleteness and um, contradiction. So we shouldn't strongly identify with our races or we shouldn't strongly identify with our genders. We should see the way in which our particular way of identifying informs us of our lack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's in the identifying, not in what you identify with. It's in the, it's in the subjective way we identify. It's the feedback and loop. Then, yeah, and then, and then we trap ourselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's also, it's also so weird because think about the way in which we identify through our visual field. When we say black and white, that's because we see those colors. Yeah. But what if we identified based on smell? What if we identified based on, on, on hearing? What if we identified based on touch? We're so biased towards our vision that all of our categories are built around our vision. There's nothing wrong with that. Or maybe There's there is. wrong with it, but it's, 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 we're so biased towards the categories we make based on those notions. Like, for example, um, and how yeah, I, I, and, and how it uh, and how these biases, these biologically instantiated biases actually reflect themselves and seep upwards to our metaphysics, to our discourses of identification and to these politics and neural politics, right? The world is visual. The world as we look at it and live in it is mainly visual because as a as, you know, human beings are visual beasts. Um, it's also although I have although an interesting idea is that is that men are more predisposed towards being visual and women are more predisposed to being auditory, actually. Mm. Women love auditory. Women love voice. Women love narrative. Men, men love visuals. And you see that in porn and you, you see, see that it in, porn. in biological evolution and, and the distinct roles that emerged in dealing with the conditions of nature. And that's why the other day we had a very cool conversation with Raven Connolly about like biological, uh, how was it? Biological evolutionarianism? What, what's, how do you call this? I'm, I'm kind of forgetting it. Owen, like evolutionary biology. Yes, that's it. God damn it. Um, and one. how it has such a powerful role. Pagli also is, is the whole, the, the similar sort of vibe and how it ends up informing 
framing, articulating not only the art that men and women create and the disciplines that men and women do, some nurses, some are architects, or rather even the way it emerges throughout history and the way that it becomes. But there's also the McLuhanite lens that we throw in here, right? That exactly. our technology up to the 20th century favored visuality that's his core thesis right we and so writing is all about converting the multi-textured multiplicity of the world into a simple visual code which is why we want laws of nature which are really simply visual ways of codifying something like the behavior of energy into e equals mc squared but with the emergence of these electric technologies that bring sound and disembodied voices into our ears and that bring all sorts of alternative textualities like not just the written mm -hmm. word we have this like sensual renaissance which totally blows apart our visual world okay let me just quickly introduce something here i that's what i was going to say i completely agree with you uh, under the peril of of sounding like uh, the kaczynski guy saying the industrial revolution was a mistake for humanity but indeed the introduction of the pill disrupted the sexual cycles of evolutionary biology that are millions of years old the headphones have disrupted the way that we hear the world the trains or, or you know modern machinery is so loud that it fucked with the way that we hear the world these um, technologies of communication that we, we're even using right now have also fucked with that system of of being in 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 what to sound very much like a cliche kind of deracinated us and invented new regimes and forced us to answer deep, 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 deep questions in a period of 100 to 200 years. And so what this sounds to me like, and this is my, my theory, is that you know how in Darwinism, people actually lack the fossil record between a, a fully formed species and its fully formed sort of descendant species? Like uh, how there's the, a critique. The gaps in the fossil record or yeah, the yeah, transitory forms? Yeah, transitory forms, like you don't have half-formed half entities, you only have the fully formed ones, more or less, right? Yeah. It's, 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 that's a misconception of evolutionary theory. But. Mm, okay, but maybe this is a complete speculation on my behalf, but all that I'm saying is that we might be currently undergoing a sort of newospheric uh, phylogenesis, like the, the, the human genus, the human being is undergoing this 100, 200, 300, 1,000, 10,000 maybe, year-long period which in the evolutionary timescale is tiny, is nothing. And, and this is a period where new species appear. This is a period where new entities appear. That's, this is kind of the emergence of a new uh, sphere. Well, it, I think, I think it's, I think it's, I think, oh, in, so we're not talking about, um, my, in my PhD thesis, global brain singularity. Um, I have a, a, a theory about this, which maybe we have time to, to talk about a little bit, which might give some light on what you're trying to say is, I call what's going on a technogenesis. So a technogenesis is analogous to abiogenesis. So abiogenesis is the birth of life. So it's abiogenesis describes the process where chemistry becomes biology. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a well-defined technical notion, abiogenesis. So the process where chemistry becomes biology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, now that process is studied through autocatalytic systems and how autocatalytic systems become autopoetic, which basically yeah. means self-referential, which means self-making. 
I love that. Self-making. Isn't that the whole core of what these philosophies of becoming, in fact, ontological design are about, the feedback loop of design? Doesn't that sound like, like what you're saying? It's on a whole other level now. So now, now what I'm trying to say is the human species, and I think Alexander Bard would like this a lot, the human species is a process of atechnogenesis, where <laughs> we, are, we are the bridge between biological life and technological life. So in the process of biological life to technological life, we have these mimetic creatures, these linguistic creatures, which are not autopoetic on their own. They require human beings as a vessel, as a body, to carry them. And they also so, require the technology. They also require the technology for embodiment. Yeah. But then could there be a process where through our own scientific interventions, we are creating a totally other ecosystem of life of its own level, not biological, a, a, yeah. a, level, a level of technological life, which is totally other to any life that existed in biology at all. I wholly agree. Great thing, God. I wholly agree. I feel obviously comes to mind is Cynthia's. I would say that I have a bias to say that the life will not be technological, but neurological. And technology is kind of a substrate in the same sense that the earth on which the roots grow is not really alive, but the roots are. Right. So it, it, it's, it's mechanisms of selection are it's, it has such a huge advantage over biological life mm -hmm. because biological life require in order for intelligent change in order for intelligent adaptation it requires that the organism die but here we see already we've been talking about it with hegel death comes into life and you go through metaphorical deaths yeah so already there's a difference already there's a possibility for radical evolution because i don't need to biologically die in order to die Uh -huh. I can I can undergo metaphorical death. Now, what is now what is the craziest level of this that we currently have? And I have to say that this is not my idea, this is Jizik's idea. The craziest level that we have right now is think about video game subjectivity. With video game subjectivity, you can die and be reborn. Yeah. Like think about Mario, you're going through a level, you die, you come back immediately. What Zizek calls this is undeadness, is that not only, it's, it's basically that you, your, your immortality is that you can't die. Every time you die, you come back. <laughs> so, That's too Zizekian. You want to die. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I love this notion, though, that like, because his notion of immortality isn't this sort of like, it's not really like this like naive, like it's not this naive sublime immortality where we're like, everything's great. You know, like you're in heaven or something like that. Because you can't even imagine what that would be like. His notion of immortality is undeadness where you, you can't die. You're just like this entity, which no matter what you do, you come back. The other person who I've heard speaking, and this is kind of a, a divergence, Maybe we could come back to, to technogenesis in a little bit. But the only other person that I've heard speaking about undeadness and the lack of differentiation between life and death, up and down, men and women, was uh, Vladislav Shirkov, kind of this anti-liberal Russian friend of Dugin, who also subscribes to this to, to many of the tenets of their philosophy, and obviously. But 
they position themselves as critics of liberalism. It is in liberalism that the paramount freedom and the paramount value is the freedom to choose. To choose what? Well, no, to choose. To choose even between anything, between being alive and dead. And that there will be such a technological process of neurological warfare uh, as the natural evolution of techno-capitalism goes through the free market. You know, just, just corporations get so big, so big, so big and start to compete at such high levels that even us, in our sense of being alive and dead is commodified, that even our distinction between up and down is commodified and fucked with. That's why his, his short story is called Without Sky. When they were attacked by a bunch of planes, it's kind of a narrative, a metaphor. They were attacked by a bunch of planes in his village and he got a plane fell on him. Nobody heard anything because it was silent. And from that day onwards, <clears throat> he was only able to see two dimensions. There was no sky in the village. He was unable to perform uh, any cognitive effort that went beyond like black and white. And that's how his, he was fucked with. And I think this, this sounds extremely eerie as well. Which, by the way, to me, sound the, like the birth pangs of, of, of technogenesis, like you call it, or, or really neurogenesis, like Pierre Tilhard de Chardin calls it, and uh, other people who speak about the, the newosphere. Well, to me, to me, the crucial transition from a technogenesis to technogenesis is basically when, um, so I built this into a theory of reproduction. So there's a competition between biological reproduction and cultural reproduction, which doesn't appear among biological organisms, which basically means that there, we have limited time and energy and we can put that limited time and energy into the reproduction of biological organisms having children yeah. or into the reproduction of our mind children, which is our cultural development. Mm -hmm. And that as we go closer and closer to technogenesis, we are going to devote, my thesis would be, we're going to devote more and more time and energy to cultural reproduction over biological reproduction. And that the imminence of this process is that we're actually going to be creating, we're going to be creating our own life forms. We're going to be creating our own, we're going to be creating our own worlds possibly. And that is in trend with the statement of the fact that it is in developing countries that you find less biological life forms. And it is in the developing, developed, like the richest countries that you will also find the more developed cultural forms, meaning the most ghosts, the most phantasmatic not calling everyone else primitive, just it's a matter of density. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's the, there's, and, there's well, and the, 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 the biggest, the biggest transition and the biggest like concrete transition in this, in this process was, and it happened so quickly on an evolutionary time scale. And the fact that it's not being discussed more is really crazy is um, the, de is the decline in reproduction below replacement level. Yeah. So, Historically speaking, women would have five to seven children. Now in the industrial revolution, women went down to having two to three children. And now in the 21st century, there are many developed countries which are below two and even down to one child per woman. And many people, now we have the first generation of, of adults who are childless and as a culture childless. And this process, as it keeps unfolding, is, to me, the vehicle of technogenesis. Absolutely, because it represents kind of this genetic bottleneck uh, that just feels inexorable. And let's be sober and admit it. There will be a genetic bottleneck. 
there will be a populational cultural bottleneck in which after the sort of set of all existential threats that are currently facing humanity, that being one of the big ones, in my opinion, and one of the least spoken about, uh, the, the set of all of these challenges, they will compound and um, they will produce great selective pressures on humans. And to me, that's going to be the vehicle of this speciation, meaning, meaning that those who somehow come out of this into the, the, the new millennium, into the century of the newosphere, and that somehow find a way to nest themselves within this, within this large, you know, cephalized newosphere, which is a way that I like to call it. It's like, it's like an ecology. It's like a new ecology. Yeah. And some of us will be nested in it better. Yeah, and it and it won't it won't necessarily like my thought of it. It won't necessarily be like like it's kind of like how in the movie Her, the AIs become super advanced and they start forming all these hyper complex relational networks, and the biological human beings don't even notice it's happening. Like it's happening in a totally different realm. Like so, like it's like it's like those entities will be paying as much attention to biological humans as biological humans pay to the great apes. It's yes. like, we don't, we don't pay attention to them. Like, uh, we most just, there's, like most we're in a totally, we're in a qualitatively different domain. Yeah, yeah. Like it'll be a qualitatively different domain. Hopefully these autocults don't transform us into chihuahuas as pets. <laughs> Jokes aside, <laughs> talk to me about sexual ontology. But give me the worst case scenario, as in what's the tragedy of sexual ontology, especially in this context that we're talking about right now, the species that refuses to propagate itself, something like that. Well, there's a misconception. There's a miscon. So, I mean, okay. <laughs> the, like, in some sense, the worst case scenario is like, like, um, it's like, it's already happened. Like, the problem is, is that sex doesn't exist. Like the problem with sexual ontology is that it's nothing. Like the, the, the like, like, like take it, like take for like the question, the question like people like Alenka Zupanchich ask is like, imagine if sex was present and like, like, <laughs> like if sex, like if it's basically if what is actually in our sexual imaginaries was present, it's impossible to imagine. It's like the problem of sexuality is that it doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, like that, that's like sexual, like that's the mystery of sexual ontology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That it is always, ex that it exists in relation to ghosts in potentiality, but it is, it's rarely actualized in the same scale. It's, 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 it's like, that the entity we try to create in sexuality can't exist in our dimensions. Yeah. Like I, we could go deep, we could go deeper into it, but I, I feel like, I feel like it, it's almost too much to go into it. But like, it's like, like imagine the sex act between two bodies, like a man and a woman's body. It's like that entity can't exist in our reality. Like the, 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 cl the, clue, the clue to what this is for me is in a psychoanalytic reading of Plato's Symposium. 
in a psychoanalytic reading of Plato's Symposium, you hear Plato talk about the primordial androgynous creature. Yes. And the, and the, and, and the androgynous creature, the androgynous creature was neither man nor woman. It was some very strange entity that he describes. It, it sounds absurd because he describes it like a sphere with eight arms and legs. And he said it was super fast. It could move anywhere and do anything. And that crucial, the gods were jealous of it. And the gods were jealous of it. So they it cut the entity into two so that it would spend its entire life looking for the other. So and it was kind of like, it's kind of like this, like you could use like, for example, like, like this metaphor of flatland that yeah. it's like the metaphor of flatland would be like the gods cut us into two dimensional creatures so that we couldn't perceive the third dimension. And we spent our entire life trying to like build the third dimension in two dimensions, but we can't do it. So that's why, that's why, uh, yeah, I get it. So that's the tragedy. That's, uh, the tragedy's that's, already happened. Yeah, yeah. That's the tragedy, tragedy of the fall. And that's yeah, why it's the dead God and a cross, cross the four dimensions. That's why to be incarnate is to have already been defeated. Yeah. And to acknowledge death is to really struggle with that core lack. Absolutely. That's, the, that's, that's a very deep, like, actual occult concept in a way, in that... To be incarnate is already to have been defeated, to be in the prison of time space. So like, here's, here's, here's my thing is like, when Einstein tried to imagine time as a fourth dimension of space, he ended up thinking things, and this is how you know he was a good theorist. He ended up, his theory ended up leading to phenomena which he himself didn't want to believe. Like, that's how you know you can trust a the theorist. Well, such, such as what? Wet, like black holes in the Big Bang. Okay. He didn't want to believe in those things. <clears throat> but it's imminent to the theory of general relativity. And mm -hmm. they went searching for those things and they found them. Yeah. It feels like whenever we, we, so, we speak. But that, so, that, so that was Einstein's way to deal with time. But I'm saying that if, if, if we think about time in this socio-historical Heideggerian sense, the philosophical sense, that the resolution of time has to be um, about, it has to involve like another dimension of space. Like, like we actually have to create a different dimensional reality to that, that will be worthy of our imaginations that will be worthy of our, of our libidinal drive that will be worthy of, I, I I understand where you're coming from. <laughs> like, but it will, but it will be a qualitatively different dimension of reality. Yeah, feels like uh, here we have to think very strange geometries. Exactly, and really speaking about dimensions and geometries and how our conceptions of the dimensions have worked and work, I feel like I'm always gravitating towards the same cosmology, the same system. I don't know if it sounds weird, but here's again an iteration of it, which is. Um, we are in time space. They are as much features of reality as they are of our perceptions, meaning that we can't really perceive anything outside of time. If you do a fuckload of ayahuasca, you get intimations, but really only death can provide you with that. Near-death experiences, reading, being in time. Now, what's the Kabbalah and, and, and um, even Heidegger and many cosmologies like Gnosticism in a way, 
actually speak about and others symbolically is kind of the, it's the fall and the fall is unidirectional. It's down through the dimensions, meaning that right now being in a dimension of three, you know, space and time, we cannot really conceptualize anything above the, above that other than via symbolic abstraction, right? We can't really perceive it because why? Because my eyes only see time and space. I can't really know what's beyond that because I haven't died and who knows what actually exists there. We are bound in kind of this phenomenological prison. There's things that by definition cannot be known and we can use abstractions and, and, and we do, and they're very useful by the way, uh, j j just in the same way that the flatlanders can actually presuppose the existence of another body touching their, you know, architectural blueprint, to, to, if, you, if you well know the metaphor. And uh, this to me is, 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 uh, is the fall. Again, the same story. It's how, it's why God as Christ is dead on the cross, meaning to be incarnate, to have been, here's, let me go full new agey and then, Please see how, how this relates to you. From the Einsoft, from the unformulatable oneness, being in God falls down through the dimensions. And with every fall, through every step, take step with, with quote unquote step, with every dimension, with every step, it gains characteristics. It becomes more divided, more fragmented. So that whenever it, to the point where it falls into our kingdom, the kingdom of Middle Earth, of time space, of, of five fingers, it gains certain characteristics, but it loses the ability to conceptualize others, namely those that are higher dimensionally. And I feel like when I hear the word, again, phenomenology of spirit, that is the intimation that Hegel was trying to put down. That's when, when Heidegger speaks about being in time and then the role of death in creating meaning, that is the intimation that he was trying to refer to. When uh, death practices are used in occultism or social secret societies to 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 bring people to different levels of being that's the same thing that's actually happening you the ritualization of having that intimation in order to produce that in the, into the individual so it's actually even triggering it so let me let me give let me give you yeah. the formula Zizek uses to, to to explain hegel's notion of the fall which is the fall creates what it was the fall from Okay, let's think about it for a moment. The fall creates what it was the fall from. Okay, so when we think like, so when we think, for example, about the Big Bang, here's the example I'd use practically for science. When you think about the Big Bang singularity as the symmetry breaking in the fall. Well, right now here on earth, we are using particle colliders to recreate the conditions of the Big Bang here on Earth. So the fall creates what it was the fall from. Yeah. And what does that leave us with? With an Ouroboric time. It leaves us with looking at Eden and at Armageddon simultaneously. And one of the things that, that often comes to mind is that in, in here, in time-space, Armageddon is always in the future. Death is always in the future by definition. And because those people who can articulate this are alive and I cannot stress this enough. And then Eden is always on the past by definition. But outside of time space, these might be continuous events. Absolutely. They might be a single event yep. that 
here it manifests itself as past and future. And if you like get really high and meditate, it's scary. That's why Abraxas comes in and all these, these symbolic figures as, as scaffoldings to take care of that. Um, but outside, it, it, it's this eternal who, timelessness. Who knows? Because here's the thing is like, I can give you like the most intimate temporality that I experience on psychedelics is that it's simultaneously something that emerges and it's like my home and my origin. Yeah. So it's like, it's the, it's like it emerges like in a future direction, but it's like, it's always been. Because future and past are really like fade yeah. circumstantial. All future and past, it's like, what I say is not like, like, it's just that our convention, our conventional notions of temporality don't make sense anymore. We have to have a think of different temporality. Maybe it's something like what Bard says about hyper time. I don't know that enough, but maybe. What's Nick's land formulation about time? It's like the idea that the present comes out of the past and the idea that the future comes out of the present are basically both the idea that the past creates the future in a sense. And so determinism and free will actually kind of reconcile into the same thing. I mean, I free know, will implies I, I, that the I, I, present creates the future and determinism implies that the past creates the present. Right. But as you both imply, there's this, the same direction to them. And so actually we can kind of just forget both. Yeah, they might, they might both be, they might, but they might, they might both require reconciliation. I haven't read Nick Land, but I can say that in the scientific universe, what is repressed is the notion of final causality and the notion of the future, like a real notion of the future. So I've heard some people describe Nick Land as saying like that the, the, the dimension of the future is calling us in the present. Completely. Mate, from, oh, God damn it. This is, for me, is, I completely agree with that. So, and for, for like the book, the book I referenced earlier, Incomplete Nature by Terrence Deacon, where he talks about absentials, you know, for, for him, he's talking about absentials in the dimension of what Aristotle would call final causation. So he's trying to basically revive Aristotle by like kind of desubstantializing Aristotle because he's introducing this notion of absential or the notion of like the, the, historic, the historicity of nothing, the historicity of lack. And that's also what, that's also what Buddhism misses. The historicity they, of lack. The historicity of lack. And that's the diff, that's to me the difference between Buddhism and like Heidegger. The difference. That's the difference is like Heidegger is trying to think about the historicity of being as something. Being. Whereas Buddha, you, you got to, you know, cross-reference Buddhism, Buddhism and Lacan, and then you have this historicity of lack as the end. Yes, exactly. There's a huge important dialogue to be had between spiritual Buddhists and psychoanalysis, because they're both concerned with the same thing, which is desire and what to do with it. And they're both dealing, they're both like, Buddhism is in some sense dealing with trauma because it's dealing with suffering. And this leaves us with future causality then, yeah, because yeah, we yeah, are we have to think future causality. We are that which put the future lacks. Therefore we move towards it. That's it. That's totally. why, the, that's why the fall exists. That's why time and the linear conception needs to move to the future. It never stops because there's a lack This future causality. That's part of the inframing of the, of the Malkuth of our dimension.
of the kingdom. Totally. It's where, it's where emergence is. It's where creativity is. It's where freedom is. And it's what science doesn't think. I want to just point out to, to something that's a little less, that is, is just a surface level analysis. You mentioned the fall creates what it was the fall from. Heidegger says, being is the being for whom being is a question, something like that. I'm butchering the quote. But there's a certain, these sentences are purposefully self-referential. Absolutely. Because they want to attribute to one vessel, to one concept, kind of this, they want to break it apart in its symmetry. And by doing so, really open up a vista to something else that exists there. So if you're, if you're looking at pure linguistic techniques, right? It does feel like what they do is they encompass within themselves maybe a dialectic, maybe this this A minus A, and, and then it points, it creates momentum towards something. Maybe A wasn't the right thing to Absolutely. say. Absolutely. Yeah. You know so I mean? it, it, it's A and non-A. Yeah, maybe A and non-A, and then it, like it implies some movement, yeah. It's again something and nothing becoming. Yes, 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 yes. Fuck it. So it's dialectic, dialectical. And there's yeah, the, dialectical. They're di they're dialectical thinkers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Completely. No, I understand. And then there's kind of this this lack. There's a, there's a way in which non-dialectical thinkers are always interacting with some boring symmetrical image. God damn, that was deep. <laughs> oh, deep. Really, it is. <laughs> you gotta go for the symmetry breaking, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like I like Zizek's notion. Zizek is kind of a joke. It says, um, uh, uh, "Divided we stand, united we fall." United we fall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's, it's not. not There's not this notion that uh, uh, united we stand, divided we fall. I know, I know. It's it fucks it up. No, it's a it's a, a, a flipping. That's why I say no division. And it's, it's exactly in division. We're unified. <laughs> why? <laughs> is not really possible, but the tension is what is kept tension because yeah. that's why people of opposites attract somehow more tension, yeah, and, tension. And, and why and why um, you know femi feminists feminists probably have way more sex with the you know the alpha male anti feminist than the feminist cuck boy or whatever you want to call him like the the guy who's trying to be a feminist. There's, you know, like the guy who's trying to be a feminist isn't having sex. Even Paglia says that in societies where sexual liberation was a phenomena, sadomasochism came connected to it, meaning the liberation of sex. She, she says this, and she, she probably looked at this in uh, late Rome and even our days. The liberation of sexual norms ha is, can be, you know, there's a connection between that and what comes immediately after that is sadomasochism. Which is very interesting as well. It's kind of the symmetricity has to happen. Uh, these, these. Anyway, I'm speculating. I don't know. I don't know okay. what I'm saying. Sadomasochism and the uh, the big black dick archetype, right? There's the return of the repressed of the hypervirile man in the porn fantasy of the uh, of the like the black body, which is only associated with with masculine sexuality. A form of fetishization as well, and the whole planet porn thing is is such a is where you can fucking really take a snapshot of how the collective psyche is unfolding through the cultural uh, circumstances, namely race and gender. They, they figure prominently in there, at least in open, like, open information economies. 
such as liberalism. Uh, that's what it feels like because it feels like uh, places that have less open informational economies, they will also have more static regimes of discourse or rather slightly more managed. They will not be so volatile and they will perhaps have a way to keep the libidinal volatilization that we're going to see in the newosphere. They will keep it a little bit more, I don't know, they will maybe react better, protect themselves better from the upcoming uh, a digital flood. Or rather, maybe that's a conscious effort from their end. There's something to be said here, at least, because the, the open nature of informational economies and liberalism, I cannot dissociate that from what AI is doing to the world. That's why I look at the non-liberal examples. Well, I think there's a lot. I think we have to think about it dialectically because there's like one of the most deep dialectics is probably the dialectics between openness and closeness. It's ultimately about like, you know, membranes and it's, it's about boundaries. Um, it's about how and why we form boundaries. Um, and that to me is such, it's, it's, it's such, it's such a deep question, you know, like, because if you have total openness, then ultimately you have no identity you in order to have some identity you need some closeness you need some yeah. you need some way to manage a boundary you yeah. know but those boundaries need to be fluid of course like in the postmodern world and in the west it's like kind of in our, in our thoughts anyway there's no boundary yep there's no boundary and so i guess russia and china are the the antithesis of that but they're they're but they're not the synthesis so i i don't believe in like dugan and stuff like that like to the end you know like no, they're, no. Not, they're not the synthesis no, you know no. like ultimately clinging to russian or chinese identity is not the answer yeah i know i know it's gonna it's it's, it's you know, like i think there's something ridiculous in saying like we have our own special russian truth that's nothing that's yeah, it's, it's, sketchy. it's sketchy. It's like, that's not what you want to say. You know more than this. You know better than this. What are you saying here? And that's, that's the thing. It's, it's a reaction. I don't think he believes what he says. He says it per, uh, weapon, in a weaponized way. Yeah, maybe he's a troll. He's an agent, not a troll. A troll has no purpose. He's a, he's a geopolitical architect. Okay. I don't know enough about him to say with any authority. That's what I would say. I don't buy his, you know, Neoplatonistic Russian truth type thing, but I will. But then what do you think he is building? What is his uh, geopolitical architecture? Chaos magic fucking, fucking the West up and, you know, putting himself in flow with technological winds. The technological winds already push the West towards increasing polarization, towards lack of identity. And they see this and they see the cracks in society. And they're like, well, American hegemony is, is really hard to take down because they have a lot of airplane carriers and the petrodollar and like they're really advanced and smart and sort of a brain drain from all the world goes in there. So what do we do? We do asymmetric warfare and we use, we leverage the newosphere, we fuck with their minds and then there's riots and up, oops, right? And so it's a kind of like nihilistic mimetic terrorism as opposed to a genuine belief in this Russian with Facebook. It's, uh, you know, if you're a smaller, weaker foe, you use, and when I say Russia, I say Russia, China, everyone, just the fuck, a coalition of, of would-be hegemons, or at least people who would love the hegemony of Americanism to decline. Well, they see the winds of technology and they're like, well, yeah, let's fuck with this. And, you know, when doing is a chaos magician, that just, to me, rhymes so well. And he never speaks about being a chaos magician. He, he always speaks about 
his for political theory in very understandable terms, which is in itself is like, are you chewing this down so that more people can understand this? But 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 when you know that he's actually a chaos magician, and when we know that the newosphere is such a volatile, saturated place where all the memes are just fucking with each other in in a way that is unpredictable, then suddenly magic makes a little bit more sense. Magic has this way to articulate and formulate effects in a way that you really cannot predict the relationship between cause and effect because memes don't work like that. It's not like, oh, I'm going to put this meme out there and people are going to react like this. No, because it's unpredictable or go magic. Um, that's, what, that's, what, that's how humans used to relate to the climate when the climate was an autonomous system outside of us. You pray to the thunder god. You pray to the earth god to give you crops because you don't really know how to control it. But we've solved that problem. But there's another climate whose problem we haven't solved yet. That's the newosphere. We haven't solved this climate. The Guido Borg calls this the autonomous march of the non-living. Nick Land talk, talk, calls it autonomous intelligence, meaning capitalism is the process of intelligence gaining speed to the point that it becomes autonomous, escape velocity. To me, it's the same thing. Uh, perhaps future causality. <laughs> when I say autonomous, maybe I'm big othering it. Maybe. Uh, and maybe this big other is, is the future causality at the end of history. <laughs> but speculations aside, uh, it, it does feel like that's how it pans out in a mimetic warfare scenario in geopolitics. Well, now I'm, I'm, I'm interested in what you're going to what you're going to label this. I think we have I think we have uh, like label this podcast. We got I think how, how long now? I think we've got three hours of dialogue here. <laughs> That was long. Two and a half, certainly. Yeah, I fucking love you guys, man. I've just been in that like metaphysics section. I was just like, damn, I need a joint right now. <laughs> Light it up. <laughs> Light it up. <laughs> That's great. Woo! Wait, was it was it good for you, Owen? <laughs> oh man, this has been uh, this has been beautiful. You guys are like my uh, my philosophy big brothers. I love how I love how before you press record on this podcast, we were talking somehow about sex, and I was like, "Oh, think me harder, and uh, think me deeper." And we were all making all these weird, dirty jokes. Yeah, I, I, now did, you were did like, we, "Oh, and was it good? Did we go deep enough?" <laughs> oh, and did you? Was it good for you? Yeah. Oh, I've been thoroughly penetrated by your uh, by your mind fallacies. That's lovely. Thoroughly penetrated. <laughs> Good to hear, man. Good to hear. That's wholesome. My ontology is severely fractured. I'm going to be walking funny for days. You fucking. <laughs> I'm going to be being funny with a capital B for days. <laughs> All right, gents. Shall we call told, it torn my black hole to pieces. <clears throat> God damn it. I think we can wrap it. And uh... <laughs> there's children. All right, so I'll, 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 just, I'll, I'll just close with saying, like, for, for obviously like this is this is why i wanted to get into these topics in the beginning of sex masculinity and god because i feel like once you open these comps i think once you open these conversations up fully and you like you really go into them as deeply as you can with philosophy i think the possibilities for thinking are endless it's it's such a rich it's such a rich ecology of thought like and one of the biggest things i'll leave leave people with who are who i mean who are listening to this whole thing is um, obviously it's interested you to some degree is that um, <laughs> one of the biggest paradoxes is that sexuality is actually a um, uh, probably the most intellectually stimulating, stimulating phenomenon. 
Like we usually have this notion that sex is animalistic or sex is primitive or sex is somehow not intellectual, but I think it's actually the most intellectual possible topic, which is why I would say like, for example, if you watch a Woody Allen film, you know, he combines sex with intellect in this, in this brilliant way, you know, like we never just have sex. You know, we, 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 we have to go through a process of deep metaphysical conversations and then we can have sex. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So yeah, guys, the point is when this conversation ends, we're all going to fuck each other. That's what Cadell is basically saying. Yeah, okay. <laughs> all right. Yeah. But that, that's, that's my spiel. And thank you so much for having me on. This is obviously fantastic, uh, fantastic um, time for me. So thank you both. And this Cadell, is where can uh, people find you? Cadellast.com. I also have a YouTube channel. If you type in Cadellast, you'll find me on YouTube. Type in Cadellast on Google. I think I'm the only one. Very cool. Do you know that there's another Daniel Fraga? He's a Bitcoin billionaire who escaped the authorities in Brazil and he's currently Please. missing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's missing, is he? Wink. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I like <laughs> having the name. When I was a kid, I didn't like having the name Cadell. I wanted to have a name like Daniel. Because uh, like there's oh there'd be another Daniel in, the, in the, but now like really? I don't mind because I think I'm like the only Cadell like so. <laughs> there you go. So cool, All right, gentlemen. Let's uh, let's wrap it. I need to have a shower and wash this sweat off. All right, peace out, guys. Bye bye. <laughs> Take care, brothers. We hope you enjoyed the show. Consider becoming our patron helping us put out more content like this patreon.com forward slash techno social